0: Well, good morning, my name's Taylor Reevley, and it's a pleasure to be here together at a family gathering with a tree in the room, no less, uh, celebrating what God has done for us in Christ. Um, this morning I've got a question, though I'm not sure, it was a hard week in football for our local teams. Um, how many of you are Oregon Duck fans? Okay, there's a few. That's very good. How many of you are Oregon State Beaver fans? How many of you just prefer your ducks and your beavers, live in the woods, and you're fans of hiking or something, maybe? I don't know. Well, none of you, I assume, who raise your hand, would call yourself, I am an Oregon Ducks fan. We ditch all that terminology when we talk about ducks fans and beavers fans. We just say, I'm a duck and I'm a beaver. Our fandom defines our being. We take on that identity. Now this, in case you weren't aware, these two teams have been playing in the state of Oregon. They're about an hour apart, Corvallis and Eugene, since 1894. And every other year, these teams meet and determine who's going to be the top football team in the state of Oregon. Regardless of how the season's going, the game is worth watching because they care. It's a fun game. Wikipedia has a very helpful segment um, describing this particular football game, and it is called Notable Game-Related Incidents. And it contains the stories of fire, and kidnapping, and hazing, and brawls between fans of these two teams. Now, the point is, you cannot be a fan of both the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers. If you claim to be a fan of both, you're not a true fan because true fans storm the field and light it on fire. No, instead, if you try to be a fan of both teams, you are a loser. Regardless of who wins. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commends, no, he demands our exclusive allegiance to our King. He knows that you cannot serve competing rival masters, and if you try to serve both, you will lose regardless. So, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 19. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I have a spoiler for you. This morning we are not talking about football. And this morning we are not talking about money, we are talking about allegiance the crux of what Jesus is describing in these verses is that citizens of the kingdom orient their whole being, even their things, in relation to their king. Citizens of the kingdom orient their whole being and their things toward their king. They have undivided allegiance to their king. In other words, to belong to the kingdom of heaven means that all of your value, all your affection, all of your longings, all of your belongings, all of what makes you, you are wrapped up in the king of the kingdom. And to make that point, Jesus contrasts two realities three times. He talks about two treasures, a treasure in heaven versus a treasure in earth. He talks about two eyes, a good eye or a bad eye, and two masters, God or mammon. Now, let us consider these two treasures. I'll remind you, and would you listen again? As I read verse 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verses 19 through 21 function as both a conclusion to what comes before it in chapter 6 and an introduction to what comes after it in chapter 6. It's a turning point. And if you remember, Jesus has been illustrating that almsgiving, verses 1 through 4, prayer, through 15 and fasting 16 through 18 are to be done oriented to the king of the kingdom, oriented toward the reward or the treasure that God is going to give those who wholly belong to Him. And in this conclusion, Jesus is pointing to wisdom, to two different paths that diverge in manners of being in relation to the treasure. And as he concludes this section in Matthew chapter 6, he does what he's been doing all along. And he aims straight at the heart. Your almsgiving, do not give in order to receive the reward or the treasure of the praise of man. Your prayer, do not pray so that you will be heard and exalted by men. Your fasting, do not receive, do not fast to receive the treasure or the reward of being seen and lauded by men. That is your earthly reward. And if that is the reward you seek in the way you live, act, give, pray, or fast, then that is the reward you will receive. And that is all you will receive. So when Jesus finally gets to verse 21 and says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. He's driving at the core of their being, the center of who you are. If you live in treasure or seek the reward of the praise of men, then you are, that's a being word, you are a citizen of an earthly kingdom alone. That's what ordinary humans are. Not disciples, not citizens of the kingdom. His invitation here in 19 through 21, as it has been throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount thus far, is a call to a greater righteousness. A holistic righteousness. One devoted to God from the whole being. And if you treasure the reward of God, then that is what you will be rewarded by God. So, as a conclusion, verses 19 through 21 are doing what Jesus has been doing all along and pointing straight at our hearts. But these verses also function as an introduction to what follows it particularly an introduction to, how, uh, to the call to greater righteousness as it pertains in a worldly economy. So here is an introduction. Okay, we're introducing what's going to follow. He's also using wisdom language, pointing to two different ways of being in the world. And he uses the same word five times in these t- three verses. Treasure. Literally, he's saying, do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth, but do treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do you think he's going to talk about next? The treasure. And while he's been talking about treasure, reward as a metaphor, for God's reward of vindication or validation or affirmation that is future, now he's going to be talking about even the literal sense of the treasure itself. Possessions, money, things of earth, career, success, fixtures of a world economy. And it's certainly broader than just money. Now, His call is this, the call to wisdom is this. There are two ways of being in relation to this worldly economy. There are two ways of being in relation to the treasure, because there are two treasures. The first is to treasure treasures on earth. And his point here is pretty clear those treasures are not secure, they will rot, they will disappear. They will fall away. You will die and you don't get them. You will die and they will go to someone else. In fact, what happens to those treasures on earth is the same thing that happens to the faces of the hypocrites when they are fasting in verse 16. They become disfigured, distorted, unrecognizable. The treasure vanishes. Now compare that with the treasure in heaven. The contrast is clear. It is secure. It will not fall apart. It will not rot. It will not be disfigured. Life in this way, treasuring treasure in heaven, is the pure, virtuous, good, and wise way of being in the world. Stop. We have, I think, at least two problems, but two big problems here. And understanding what Jesus is saying is not one of them. We've got a problem with our brokenness, the brokenness of our own heart, and a problem with wisdom in how to practically live in this way. Now, the problem with our heart is that really we can't see heaven, but I can see dollar bills. The problem with my heart is I might not even want heaven. I might want to be comfortable right now. The problem is, with my heart, is that I, I think duplicity sounds great. It sounds great to get both. I would really like to have God and money. That seems to be a win-win. And the deception in our own broken hearts runs deep, as I think we'll see clearly in a few moments. But the other problem is our wisdom or our application. How do we live this? How does one treasure treasures in heaven? How do I put physical things in a non-physical space? How do you do this? If you're like me, you've probably heard, um, you've probably known this verse for many years, and you've heard it used many times in relation to money, particularly an encouragement to give to the poor, an encouragement admonition even, to tithe more, particularly at the end of the year, Um, an encouragement to support missionaries, really to invest your resources in the care of people's souls. And that is a wonderful, wonderful idea. But I do not think that is what Jesus is after. After all, he's just illustrated that you can give and you can fast and you can pray and it all miss the point. So he's not now just m- turning and starting to talk about our behavior, about all the things we should do. He's still describing a way of being in the world. And because of what he says in verse 21, I believe he is saying something and calling us to something much more than merely increasing our generosity. Certainly that, but much more than that. And he says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just a moment ago, I said there are two ways of being in relation to the treasure, as opposed to two ways of doing. The reality is that there is a plethora of ways to do in relation to treasure. There's unlimited opportunities for you to spend your money or your resources in relation to the treasure. But there are only two ways of being because there are only two treasures. And with this statement here in verse 21, Jesus is not aiming at our behavior He's not trying to define for us how we do this thing practically. He's aiming right at the heart. Jesus' audience would have understood where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also to be speaking of the core of their being. Now, in the West, we have maybe a... We think we're really killing it when we think of the heart as the center of emotion, the feeling, affection. Certainly, it's more than just a a literal heart. But Jesus is even going beyond that and saying the very core of your being, the thing that makes you you, who you are, will be defined by what you treasure. What you value, what you treasure is who you really are as a person. This is a statement not merely just regarding your behavior. It's about your identity. And the question so far has been, are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? It's are, a being question. Not do you do citizen of heaven things, but are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Then treasure, treasure for yourselves in heaven. James K A Smith applies this principle of the relation to the of the treasure to our being or identity in his book You Are What You Love. The argument of the book is that people are not primarily thinking rational beings. Meaning every action we take is not necessarily thoughtful. We are instead loving, emotive, affecting, worshipful beings, driven by our heart. And so he says, you are what you love because you live toward what you want. All of the decisions that you make are not driven by your thoughts as much as they're driven by what you want. And you're going to start living out what you desire. You'll start making decisions based upon what you want. And even the the American dream is that you can become, then, what you want. Now, what is so significant about this connection between what we treasure, value, desire, and who we are? Jesus seems to indicate in the following verses that the the connection between what you treasure and who you are could not be stronger. Look with me at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. I'll admit, this passage has always felt disconnected to me from the sermon. As though Jesus is starting to talk about treasure, and then he transitions to eyeballs, and then back to kings or masters. It has not felt organized to me. But Jesus is explaining here what he has just stated in verse 21. What you treasure becomes the very thing that defines your essence. And he says, if your eyes are good... Literally, if your eyes are singular, and we've talked about wholeness already in this sermon, if your eyes are good, then you are holy light. And if your eyes are bad, then you are wholly dark. The vision or the sight we have, your perspective on the treasure, will either bring light or darkness to your being. Jesus makes a reference to a bad eye elsewhere in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, in the parable of the vineyard, where some workers worked a full day, some workers worked a partial day, and they were paid the same. And some began to gripe about the master's inequity. And the master responds, "'Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius?' Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, if you flip the page over to Matthew 20, you'll notice in any modern translation, there's a footnote at the end of verse 15. And it says, Or... Is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because I am good? It is the bad eye that looks at a good thing and calls it bad. It's a bad eye that looks at a treasure and devalues it. Now, there is a literal connection to even our relation to the treasure with our eyes because he, he uses it in the parable as one begrudging generosity. The, the, the bad eye is the stingy, begrudging, withholding, close fisted perspective on treasure. And the good eye, well, it's the opposite. It works like it's supposed to. It sees a treasure and says, that is valuable. The good eye and the light in the person produce generosity, open-handedness, freedom in life. The point here is that what you treasure is inseparable from your being. We've got another problem. What happens when I've got two options of things I could treasure and they conflict? Look at verse 24. Jesus applies the principle He's been explaining and forces our hand. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The language is strong. It's not a you should not. It's you can, you, you cannot. You are not able. You do not have the power to do that. Now, if you're reading in a modern translation, the last word is money. If you're reading in the King James Version, the last word is just a transliteration of the Greek, and it is the word mammon. Mammon is, in one sense, very unhelpful. I don't know what mammon, we don't use that word. But in another sense, it's very helpful because it is not merely money. It's a different word for money. This includes a much broader swath of resources and goods and treasures. Money is one of them. But Jesus is saying, You can't worship things of earth and the God of heaven. You have to choose between your masters. And so now it comes into focus for us a little clearer. There are two kinds of treasure. Treasure in heaven, treasure in earth. There are two kinds of eyes. There's a good eye, a healthy eye, and there's a bad eye. And there are two masters. There is God and there is mammon. If you treasure for yourself treasure in heaven... Your eye is good, your your body is full of light, and you get God. You lay up treasure for yourself on earth, your eye is bad, you serve mammon, you get what mammon gives you, and mammon is a tyrant. And he says, do more, to get more, to be more, endlessly. Now again, we don't really need help understanding what Jesus is saying. It's actually quite simple. You cannot be a Ducks fan and a Beavers fan. If you are married, you have one spouse. It is not okay. It is not right. It is not acceptable to be sleeping around. If you work for Adidas in the day, you cannot work for Nike in the night. So that makes sense to us, but we are far more tempted to put hope and security in mammon than we will ever admit. We may even be scared to admit it. It is far more difficult to live practically with Jesus as the king of everything in our lives The deception of our eyes, the the darkness in our being, the folly of our treasure center leads us to believe that we can have them both. Maybe when we started talking about treasure, you started thinking of your treasure. You started maybe even like going through the safe in your mind, like, okay, what treasure do I have? Maybe you found that you have none. You remembered Shoot, another money sermon, treasure sermon. I don't have any treasure. Jesus' teaching is right directly for you. And maybe you started scrolling through the safe, and you're still not finished yet. You have a lot of resource. Jesus' words are directly for you. Those of us with little or no money or resource are prone to believe the lie that if we had more of it, we would flourish. Those of us with plenty and abundance of resource or money are prone to believe that we can save ourselves with it or that our life flourishes because of it. So regardless of whether you have resources or not. Jesus is demanding your unrivaled, exclusive allegiance that you would value the kingdom of heaven, your citizenship there. Yes, even the king of the kingdom himself over and against any other treasure. It's also universally applied to our stage of life. Some of you are in the middle of a, of a fight to climb the corporate ladder. Some of you have retired and are so glad to be out of the rat race. And some of you are kids. You have no idea what you're in for. And Jesus' words are the same to you, to each of you. Regardless, His demand is that you would value the kingdom of heaven, your citizenship there. Yes, even the king of the kingdom over and against any other treasure. The heart of this part of the sermon is that it has nothing to do with your money. It has everything to do with your heart. And because it has everything to do with your heart, it has everything to do with your money that's the order by which Jesus addresses life as a citizen of the kingdom is by aiming at the heart so Jesus isn't after i don't believe a big year-end gift to the church or a nonprofit or a missionary or that you'll drop everything to serve at a homeless shelter this holiday season or that you'll sell your house and move overseas to plant a church that would be great But the warning in chapter 6 is that even the hypocrites do that. Jesus is after the core of your being, such that your involvement in the worldly economy is brought into submission to the one true king and him alone. Citizens of the kingdom orient their whole being, including their things, toward their King. And this is the life that flourishes. This is wisdom. The lie is that if I have enough stuff, I will flourish. Perhaps the the more honest deception is that if I have enough stuff and I have God, then my life will flourish. And at this point, we need faith. We need faith to believe that Jesus is good. Faith that Jesus knows what actually is best for us, that he is wise and actually knows what will cause us to flourish. And so Jesus points us to himself as the treasure that alone can satisfy. If you have Jesus as king, then you are saved from the tyranny of mammon. And Jesus is your peace. Now, you might be asking, but what do we do? What do we do? There are three applications, I believe, to this sermon, this section in the Sermon on the Mount, ranging from the general to the specific. And you're not going to like them. The first is treasure God, treasure God. How do you do that? First, you should do what you sang just a moment ago and come to Jesus. Arise and come to Jesus and find, as the old hymn says, in Him 10,000 charms. And when you come to Him, would you let Him enchant you with His goodness and His kindness? his excellence and his radiance and his magnificence. Look at him with good eyes and let his goodness transform you. Let his goodness satisfy you. So treasure God, the second, and more specifically, That those who have come to Jesus have been given the Spirit of God to dwell within them, to guide, to teach, to help them live out life as a kingdom citizen, to point them to Jesus. That's his job. Listen to him. Perhaps he's saying, right now, come to Jesus. Or perhaps he's saying, Stop worrying about your money. Or perhaps he's reminding you of that newest business venture and saying, yeah, really that, you're doing that for mammon, for yourself. Or perhaps he's assuring you, your things are just things. You are a child. Listen to Him. Let the Spirit rule in your heart so that Jesus might rule in your life. And finally, and most specifically then, celebrate the Lord's Supper today. When we celebrate communion, we are flying the flag of our allegiance to our King. We are declaring Our citizenship belongs not here, but to heaven. We're reminding ourselves, rich or poor, that we have found in Christ a treasure that satisfies and that it will be worth it. It will be worth it, and that is why we proclaim it until He comes. If you have not trusted Jesus... If you have not put your faith in him, then come to him today. He will welcome you today, he will satisfy you today. And if you come, then celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, run onto the field with the team. If Jesus is your king, this meal is for you a reminder. That you belong primarily, fundamentally, exclusively to a heavenly kingdom. And it is just a foretaste of the meal that we will enjoy in its fullness. In the presence of a king who satisfies. And we will hunger and we will thirst no more. Because Jesus, our king, satisfies and there's no other king like him.